The Guardian. Hello and welcome to this Guardian Sustainable Business podcast supported today by Unilever. My name is Joe Confino and today we're discussing the role that brands can play in creating consumer movements. Can they change society for the better? And what can we learn from the campaigns that have worked and those that haven't? We'll be finding out the answers in just a moment. With me today, I'm delighted to have on the line from our New York office, Chrissy Philolithes, who's Chief Digital Officer for RED, that led the campaign to engage businesses and consumers to help eliminate AIDS in Africa. We've also got Alnor Lada, Partner and Head of Strategy for Purpose, which creates its own social movements for change and is also a sister organization to the political movement organization Avaz.org. Org. And in the studio with me in London, we've got Robin White, founder of the Ideas Foundation and chairman of Engine, who advises businesses on marketing and communication. Uh, thank you all for taking part in this discussion. First question I want to put to you, Robin, which is in the past, we're used to social movements coming from civil society groups, politicians, brands. Is it really the role of brands to get involved in social movements? I thought they just sold us products. Well, historically, brands use philanthropy and that's been a traditional thing that they've done for many years but something new has happened first in terms of brands being on the defensive and secondly brands taking opportunity on the defensive brands have been challenged by social movements unilever for example have been challenged about groundnut oil in various markets so that the very first stage of the engagement with brands with social action was probably a defensive move then what happened, and it's a bit like when the British Empire was collapsing, all the, the terrorists, like Jomo Kenyatta, end up as being the prime ministers. Um, but same in Northern Ireland. The people who lead Northern Ireland were, were once regarded as the terrorists. So a similar thing has happened with brands. They've, they've created partnerships. Friends of the Earth is a partner with Unilever. And what has happened, I think, is out of a broad sense of self-interest for everybody, brands have realized that there's a much broader definition of stakeholder. And their stakeholders are partners in the creation of brands. And with all the techniques of new media available, to brands, they can start to have conversations with brand communities and they can hear from their consumers about some of their concerns and they can do something about it. So many of the things that brands who partner Red, brands like Coca-Cola, brands like Unilever, brands like Marks & Spencer are doing has been fed to them by their consumers. So that is the basis of these new and surprising and I think exciting partnerships. And, and Robin, do you, do you think the, the whole issue of the role of business and its role in society is changing and therefore actually they don't see themselves as separate maybe in the, than they might have done in the past? I entirely agree. Um, I mean, we can talk later about some of the problems for a brand to do this and some of the issues, but I certainly think that there is... With an intelligent brand, they see these as partnerships. And in my little charity, the Ideas Foundation, we're working with brands like Vodafone, like Aviva, and they want to harvest the creativity of young people at the same time as helping young people. So there's a new form of mutual interest where everybody it can be a winner. Chrissy, I just wanted to come to you. Um, obviously, You've worked on the very successful Red campaign. Can you just tell us, remind us what the objective of that was and, and actually how have you engaged with brands and how easy has that been? So Red was founded in 2006 
by Bono and Bobby Shriver to bring the private sector into the fight against AIDS. And in that time, so in just under seven years, we've, through our brand partnerships and red events, we've raised nearly $210 million to date. And 100% of that money goes to work on the ground. And to understand how RED came about, we need to look at uh, the history of the Global Fund. The Global Fund is the recipient of all RED monies. It was set up in 2002 by Kofi Annan while he was UN Secretary General in order to help fight three diseases, three of the most chronic diseases in the world, AIDS, TB and malaria. It was set up under what's called a public-private mandate. So the governments were to funnel in money into the Global Fund to fight these diseases and the private sector. And in the first five years of the Global Fund's existence, $5 billion had been funneled in by the public sector and just under $6 million had been funneled in from the private sector. So you suddenly saw that there was a disparity in the monies that were coming in under this public-private mandate that came about. So when RED was formed, it was formed to actually answer the question of how can we engage the private sector in the fight and red specifically is about the fight against aids Elmore, i just wanted to come to you because all very well sort of brands donating money and getting involved in projects but actually how do they determine what the boundaries of their role is are, are there limits to what brands should get involved in and, sh- and are getting involved in I mean, what, what's your view of that there are sort of natural limits traditionally there's sort of you know I, I see it as five roles that really you know brands have played you know the first is like this facilitator role which is, you know, what a Patagonia does with a percentage of its proceeds going to uh, environmental projects. You know, Red is a good example of that. There's the, the more of the funder role, which is like the the not-for-profit sort of foundation. You know, we'll we'll be kind of evil capitalists by day, and then in the in the evening we'll uh, dole out you know small amounts of money to protect our image. And then there is the the contributor. You know, someone who sort of genuinely contributes to a social movement. And then there's the catalyst role. The, the catalyst role, you know, being the most active in social movements, actually, you know, helping to give birth to them. And, and that's very, very rare. And, you know, we have to stretch the definition of a brand in order to, to sort of get examples. So the role of ad busters in the Occupy movement is, is a good example. So those are the sort of the traditional four, facilitator, funder, uh, contributor, catalyst. And then the fifth is really co-optation. The, the traditional role we see and the, the most sort of you know, where the most examples are, are really around contributor. The, the, those are sort of the positive examples and really co-optation. The, the, the issue is that, you know, ad agencies and marketers sort of convince brands that they can always be the catalyst, that they can create their own social movement. And, and the, the honest truth is that's just very, very rarely the case. You know, at, at best, they can sort of, you know, ride social movements or be parts of them. Um, they very rarely, uh, if ever, start their own. And I'll know uh, when you look at sort of indices of trust, you see that you know trust in business is very, very low. Is there a problem with actually companies and brands actually helping with social movements if they're not trusted in the first place? I mean, is that a problem? Not necessarily. You know, I, th- I think the bigger issue is you know the reason they're not trusted. You know, is that they they sort of actively work against the best interests of the majority of the world's people. And and so, you know, we, we have to start at, at that point. You know, I, I think it depends on the brand uh, and depends on the business. And there's, you know, definitely things individual businesses can do. 
but I think at a whole, what, what we need to do, you know, if, if for, for business people and leaders of brands is to start at a critical place, you know, start at a critical place where they're looking at the overall economic, social, political system, you know, having a critique of the, the modern capitalist model, have a critique of sort of the role of brands. I think when brands start at that place, they're much more successful at actually uh, contributing and being helpful um, for progressive causes. Thank you. Robin, just bring that back to you. I mean, where, where is it appropriate, you know, when you're advising people, where is it appropriate for brands to get involved and where not? How, how do they make those sort of decisions? Involved is a very wide word. So, for example, one of my clients is BMW, and they have just are just launching some electric hybrid cars. That, that was nothing to do with us whatsoever. I applaud it. But that's their policy, their development, and they will do that for both commercial and community reasons. So that's one stage. The other stage is, I think, you know, we're working with, we're working, we, we, one of our clients is, is a Unilever brand, and we're working with them, Showerbrand or Radox, to have a program where people install aerators in their showers. It's a small point, but, um, and, but it's a very good point. And the, the question that arises then, actually, it's a very big question, is how do you get people to change their behavior? And this is an area where brands need to help themselves and also where they need to help the sustainability movement. Because broadly speaking, the sustainability movement has been a failure. It hasn't changed behavior enormously. And one of the things which the world of branding can do, and we're doing it in a small way with radios, how do we teach people to change a shower head? How do we apply our instincts there? And that's a much bigger conversation of getting involved just using our thinking, using our techniques to help these causes. But, but Robin, just, just to challenge that for a moment, because actually you look at a lot of these campaigns and they're not actually that successful. You look at Unilever, their refillable pouches, people don't want to buy it. The, the food that they're selling there with less salt, people then just put more salt at the table. Even Procter & Gamble, with their reduced to, from 40 to 30 campaign, only about 40% of people have actually sort of changed behaviour. So is there actually a problem with that brands aren't actually using very they're trying to convince people to change, but actually that's not really working. No, well, I would agree with you. I think the brands have been unsuccessful themselves in driving consumer change. Brands are successful in sustaining existing behaviours, but getting people to change their minds, getting people to change their behaviour has not been a success in the world of branding. The failure rate for new products is the same today as 40 years ago. So that's not one of the particular skills, except they're learning. And they're now learning from those failures. And some of that learning can be passed on to the sustainability movement. Great. Chrissy, coming uh, to that point about learning from failures, I mean, what have you learned along the way that actually either works or that actually, whoa, why did we try that and we wouldn't ever do that again? What, what have your learnings been? So I think that what's what's really interesting about this conversation is that, it, is that it's going on a very wide reach. And in some cases with, with brands, um, you know, you're talking about behavior change. What we have seen from Red is that actually if you give consumers the choice, they will choose the product that will do good in this world. So, for example, the whole Red model is you'll walk into Apple, you want to buy an iPod Nano. The Red one costs you exactly the same as all the others. If you choose the Red one, Apple will give up part of its proceeds to the cause. And what we've seen that's worked really well is when people are presented with that choice, 
they choose the option that will do good in the world as well. And this is something that you see increasingly, especially coming from the millennial generation, especially coming with the rise of social networks, people talking about it, telling their friends. The data shows how people will actually reward the companies that are doing good and are authentic in their purpose and actually punish the companies that aren't. And there was this, um, the uh, Good Purpose report by Edelman uh, last year. It came out with a phenomenal uh, statistic which actually stated that 86% of respondents said that the company should place equal emphasis on their social interests as well as their business interests. So you can actually see that from, from the perspective of Red and how we're looking at it, it's all about empowering consumers to make a choice. And if they're presented with that with that choice, they will make the one that can, in our case, help fight AIDS and deliver an AIDS-free generation. Alnor, there's um, there's a really tricky issue for big brands, which is they they're getting involved in social movements, but they also tend to be political in nature. And actually, at the same time, sort of brands are very fearful of getting involved in politics, and and uh, because they don't feel that's their area of of responsibility, or or they don't know how to operate it that in a in a sort of consumer way. So, can you just tell me? I mean, how can brands be engaged in social movements, but actually keep clear of politics? Surely, surely those are both the same thing. I think one of the things Robin said, and and also, you know, one of the things Chrissy said are, are totally related to this, right? Which is, there is a role for brands to, you know, harness and channel the the good intentions of consumers and citizens, um, and there is a role around behavior change. And the, the the broader question is, is is there a role around social movements? And I, I think it really depends. It depends on the brand, the history of that brand, and, and you know, like I said initially, and I don't want to sound like a the pessimist, but authentic involvement of social movements is very, very rare, if not sort of non-existent. You know, we have to stretch the definition of brand to include ad busters, which is obviously, you know, an anti-capitalist sort of anti-brand. And, and so the real question is, what can a, a brand do? And, you know, we run Purpose, which is a, a consultancy and incubator for, for social movements and uses participation of people to create positive social change. And, you know, one of the things we, we first say to, to brands is don't worry about being involved in social movements for, for lots of reasons. A, you'll probably come off as disingenuous. Uh, B, there's probably no real role for you. Um, and, and C, the focus should be on internal transformation first. You know, if you're going to be a credible player in the social political realm, the first thing you need to do is focus on the internal stuff. You know, governance. Are you a, a, a purely for-profit organization? Um, you know, I think we'll look back in, in 20, 30 years and look at pure profit organizations as these sort of pariah capitalists and, and be surprised that they sort of existed in that traditional form. Um, you know, there's all these new models, uh, B corporations in terms of governance, ESOP, the employee share ownership, aspect of companies, co-ops, you know, recently new era windows in Chicago, sort of employee buyback um, cooperative. So I think looking at the governance structure is really important. Uh, Looking at what the economic engine of the business is, is really important. You know, if 80% of your revenue is coming from selling sugar water and you want to do something interesting with, you know, where 5% of your economic engine comes from, you're going to be very vulnerable. You know, taxes is a great example, right? We're, we're seeing the hit sort of groups like Starbucks and 
Google and Amazon are taking from, you know, talking out of one side of their mouth and then, you know, not contributing to land, labor, you know, infrastructure, you know, essentially opting out of the social contract by not paying taxes. So I think there are other things beyond social movements brands need to figure out and focus on first. Arnold, just just one very uh, quick addition to that question, because you mentioned sugary water, obviously. Mm. Coca-Cola has announced that it recognizes it's part of the problem in terms of obesity, wants to be part of the solution. Can a company that actually is considered by some in society to be part of a particular social problem, can it actually be an agent of change in terms of solving that problem or are those two completely at odds with each other? Again, I think it depends on what the economic engine of their business is and how their, their, the governance structure is, right? If, if they're incented to maximize profits and 80, 90% of their revenue and infrastructure is geared towards selling this one thing, you know, the incremental sort of side talk is probably not going to be the thing that changes the game. Whereas like you look at an organization like Unilever and they're working very hard to change the organizational structure, how they make money, what their lines of business are. They're very involved in, you know, Paul Pullman's involved in the, the SDG, the Sustainable Development Goal conversation, what happens beyond the Millennium Development Goals. Um, and and they're, they're starting to think sort of structurally. And I think if you do that and that the nature of the business changes, then all of a sudden you become much more credible. The, the key thing, though, is to not obviously declare victory early. So, you know, just saying you're going to do something, you know, when the, the business itself is totally contradicts that is, is, is crazy. You know, this is the problem with forums like the Clinton Global Initiative, where lots of corporations do commitments. You know, they make these sort of uh, performative promises, but there's nothing really behind that, or it's going to take five years to fulfill those promises. Better to say nothing, focus on your internal transformation, and when the business is realigned, then start talking about it and start communicating. Great. Well, that gives us a sort of a general sense of the territory, and now we're going to get more specific. And we're going to start off with a concrete example of a brand that actually has been affecting social change. Earlier, I spoke to Megan Ramsey, who's social mission manager for the global Dove brand and responsible for overseeing the Dove self-esteem project. It's been running in various guises since 2007. You may remember their initial campaign for Real Beauty. I asked her about their most recent work in this area, Real Beauty Sketches. So the Dove Sketches film shows women describing themselves to an FBI artist who creates a picture of them as they have described themselves and then he creates a second picture of the same woman but as described by someone who she's only recently met. By the end of the film we can compare the difference between the two sketches that have been created and see the difference between the way that a woman describes herself versus the way that someone else describes her. And the differences are really quite marked. It's quite striking to see those differences both within the sketches themselves, but also how powerful that realisation is when women are faced with this sort of realisation that the way they see themselves is not actually the way that others see them. Now, you've been on the project yourself for the last three years. So can you just tell us, what, what, how, how have you taken the campaign on and, and how, what sort of impact do you think you're having? We've set out to reach 15 million girls by the end of 2015. And so far, we've reached 11 million girls with self-esteem education of at least an hour's duration. Um, the way in which we've approached this 
is through a, a sort of four-step process, if you like. Firstly, raise awareness of the problem. Secondly, deliver a tangible, honest solution uh, that is effective um, to address this problem. Thirdly, engage the community. Fourthly and lastly, try and change the world with it. Create an advocacy program and a thought leadership program that really I was talking to your chief marketing officer, Keith Weed, the other day, and he said one of the things that makes the Dove um, program stand out is its longevity. It's been going for many, many years. Can, can you just tell us why, why is it important, actually, to maintain a consistency of message for a brand? Oh, gosh, there's so many reasons why this is important. Fundamentally, from a brand perspective, maintaining consistency of message is critical so that your consumers, your target audience, really understand what your brand purpose is and what you're trying to achieve. And in doing so, you end up building the love of your brand uh, over time. Whereas if you're inconsistent, people don't have anything to hold on to. They don't have anything to associate with. And it's very difficult for them to fall in love with your brand in a way that means that they will help grow your brand over time. Robin, um, just your response to that, not, not in terms of Dove itself, but in terms of just this idea of, you know, keeping the message consistent. There's, there's such a pressure in there in this world to keep things changing, to sort of have a new campaign and do something different. Can you just talk about the importance of longevity or actually should we just have lots of different messages? No, no, you're right. You, you shouldn't. One of the things we're learning now from brain science is that the brain likes continuity. It likes more of the same. And if, you, if a brand keeps on changing the way it presents itself to the brain, the brain will say, oh, that's a different brand. It'll pigeonhole it in a different place, and it won't get the momentum you get when you have consistency year upon year upon year. In fact, creative people very often like to change communication for, for their own benefits to help get awards, etc. But the smart clients and smart agencies harness that to give continuity, and I, and I think Dove is a brilliant example of that. It's a broad uh, in some ways, but a lot of co- continuity about its core message. Elnor, just coming to you... Um Megan talked about a, a four-step campaign. I mean, when it comes to brands getting involved in social change at whatever level, we've discussed different ways they can do, are there certain lessons that they should always bear in mind? Or actually, is every campaign completely different? What are, what are, are there core principles that they should always be thinking about? Yeah, no, I guess the answer is, is of course, a, a little bit of both. So, uh, yeah, first, it, it depends on what the brand is and, and what their core economic engine is. And again, you know, if your primary business is something that's not good for the world, I, I would start in a different place. Now, on the other hand, if you're like a, a new economy business, you're a Tesla selling um, electric cars or a seventh generation with su- sustainable packaged goods, there are sort of, uh, you know, elements you can you can look at. You know, one is thinking about uh, identity and how you can ask consumers and citizens to tap their social networks based on identity to sort of expand the the mission and really have sort of participation at the core of the action. And, you know, there's aspects of the, the Dove campaign that do align with that. Uh, of course, you know, they're, they're much more marketing-based uh, than they are participation-based. Um, and that's just the nature of sort of packaged goods world and, and that world of sort of marketing. You know, the other is really building issue infrastructure in that space. 
So you're you're contributing to you know a broader social mission and the ability for people to connect themselves to find materials and education and potentially even you know politicize themselves, uh, and and you're you're sort of you know really building that out in the space. And I think those are you know participation and actually building infrastructure for the the social issue. I think are two really important aspects for you know brands who do this well. Chrissy, I just wanted to ask you. Um Hundreds and hundreds, thousands of brands, they all see, oh, God, we want to get involved. And, and the poor consumer stroke citizen is going to be bombarded with everyone campaigning on this or that. How can we avoid brands actually overloading us with campaigns as they, some people argue they've overloaded us with advertising? Well, I think we've got to look at, you know, what, also what people want to hear from their brands. I, I kind of feel that before in the conversation, a uh, question and um, comment was raised about you know just somebody taking one small action with brands is it really doing enough that could be the start of something if you give somebody an easy choice to make where in their everyday purchasing they can choose to buy a a product or do an action on the social network and a brand will contribute that actually isn't a small gesture because that could be the beginning of something there that somebody then gets deeper and then deeper involved and tells their friends and spreads the message. We're living in a whole different world now. And we are living in a world where all of us are bombarded with messages from all over, through all aspects. What I see coming through, and this being, you know, the prevalence of social media just has solidified this, is that what's really key isn't the number of messages, What's really key is, is the message authentic? Who are you hearing the message from? Where is the source coming from? And I think those are the elements that are really important as opposed to the number of messages because in this day and age, all those messages are out there. Robin, just wanted to come back to you on this because there's one thing about the authenticity of the message. There's the other about the content of the message. I I was at Sustainable Brands uh, in San Diego a couple of weeks ago and there was a lot of talk about creating new myths that that we, you know, that throughout human history, the importance of myths and storytelling and that after the Second World War, we sort of lost a lot of that, lost religion, lost a lot, lot of institutions and actually what brands started was just selling people products and products became the heroes and actually consumers became the victim. And actually we need to create new myths and actually recreate this idea of individuals as the heroes sort of fighting against the odds to sort of change society and be important, have purpose and mission. Is there something about brands sort of helping really generate this idea of people as heroes, not as consumers? Well, they, they could be. I mean, I think that what I would certainly look at is you've got those consumers hero. More relevant for me is some of the issues which as consumers are responding to. We heard about Dove. What has made Dove successful? It, yes, this, this sustainable message, but also that it signals, it signals status for the users. And going back many, many years, head over heels in Dove, the successful consumer brand signals status. It's interesting looking at the, the, the sustainability data. Only 19% of people in terms of green behavior say they want to do the right thing. It's a minority still. And I think the really interesting thing about the values that consumers have is that the sustainability movement needs to learn about the way people are. And this is about making your sustainable behavior a high-status behavior. And take, for example, your 
I don't know your energy bill. You don't know mine. And if if we're to change each other's behavior, that behavior has to become visible. We're talking about red. You know which is the product with the red, and that gives it status. So for me, the answer to this issue about myths is the myth that the consumer isn't interested in status is the most important issue, one of the most to recognize. And how can we harness the consumer's wish for status to change their behavior? Right, Elnor, just coming to you, I mean, would you agree with that? Is Do we need to actually accept that status is important and, and, and we, we, we accept that and, and build campaigns on that? Or do we actually try and recognize that actually there's something deeper going on and we should we should be respecting, you know, that idea of the hero in individuals and actually the, the that sense of community and want to do the right thing, not f- and, and for reasons not of status, actually, for the opposite? Where, where do you sit on that debate? Yeah, I think status is one aspect of identity. You know, it's one driver of identity. And and currently we live in a highly consumerist, highly materialist world, of course, especially um, in, in the West. And so I, I think to say let's just focus on status would have us just focusing on the status quo and exploiting the current insecurities that materialism has created. You know, we're seeing a burgeoning of much more altruistic, communitarian behavior. And I think really smart, progressive brands will will start tapping into that emergent identity, which is actually much truer to human nature than, you know, pure status and pure self-preservation. Altruism, if you go into the evolutionary psychology, altruism is an activity that generates status. Status is developed in nature. It's developed not by marketing men. It's a way in which people signal or animals signal their genetic fitness one to another. It's not a creation of the West. It's woven into animal behavior. And I'm saying that we should use this animal behavior to to transform our survival as animals. Sure, sure. But there's a difference in, in those definitions, right? So status itself is not a thing, right? There's a certain status right now that's a sort of attached to the materialist worldview, which is around, you know, designer goods, expensive products, brands that sort of say a certain thing. And yes, you know, you can use status in other ways. You can use status in ways uh, that, you know, where it's created through altruism, through good pro-social behavior, etc. So I totally agree with you on that. It's just the way we use status now is not that. You know, very few brands, organizations learn how to sort of harness status in that way. Uh, and, you know, if that was the, the switch in definition we were going towards and, and we're using status as, you know, this identity marker to, to help people on a journey to, to, you know, fulfill their true human nature, which is, you know, more altruistic, then I, then I would agree with that. Well, but let me tell you an example. In England, we get people put um, on the tops of their, their houses, little turbines to generate uh, electricity. Mm. They generate enough electricity to power a hairdryer but they do it to signal their status. Mm. Um, and, there's, and there's many more examples of that, and I think this no, is a course. good thing. And one of the things which, when I talk to people in sustainability movement, they emotionally feel that status is a bad thing. Is that, is uh, it, you, no, no, no. You use the word materialist, uh, etc. I think this, this is a wonderful new skill, a new tool, which the movement you're part of, not necessarily in political activity, or maybe in that as well, but in, in encouraging brands and consumers to use sustainability as a way of signaling 
their success. Okay, no, I'm going to wrestle. Right. I'm, hold on, because I'm going to wrestle back control from this, <laughs> from this transatlantic sort of battle going on, um, because we, we we haven't got that much time left, and we do have a couple of comments and um, and questions from from our readers, which I wanted to bring in at this point. Bill Ayres, who uh, runs the Think Big campaign for the O2 mobile network, he 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 wrote that um, our view is that. O2 is a platform for change, but young people are the campaigners for change. Young people have created over 4,000 social change projects across the UK with Think Big. Chrissy, I just want to come back to you because it raises the interesting point of if you have campaigns that largely sort of reside with one group of people, that they they exclude other groups. I mean, how, how do you decide if you're a brand? Actually, do you just try and reach everybody or actually do you try and reach one type of group of person? How, how do you make that decision? I think... The, the the key part to start with isn't the necessarily the number of people that you're going for. It's what is it that you're standing for? And then who is that going to resonate with? And the reality is, is that we are all multifaceted people. So every single person, many different issues resonate with them. And if somebody is of the nature where they want to, they are socially conscious, it's not just going to be about the AIDS issue or the green issue or the water mm. issue. You know, they will pick those that they support. So looking at it from a brand perspective... I think what is absolutely key is having clarity of your involvement, um, having clarity of your issue and, and, and how you're making it easy for people to participate. And all of the different aspects that we've spoken about now, making sure that that is resonating across your audiences, which will then resonate across other audiences. It's not a case of do you go for one versus many. Both are equally valid in some respects, but what I would definitely say is that depending on the change that any brand wants to evoke, you're obviously going to go for more numbers. Okay, and we've now got a question from Gavin Patterson, who's director of Yellow Brick, who was actually on our last podcast. He's asked, much goodwill was expended when Band-Aid's operations were brought into question in the 1980s. And asked, are there irreconcilable differences between what we as supporters are able to understand through a brand and the complex practicalities of operations on the ground? How do we ensure that movements are in fact performing behind the mask of a brand? Elmer, I'd like, like to ask you to answer that. I mean, how do we move beyond just the just the sort of surface of, uh, of uh, a bit like you were saying, the Clinton Global Initiative, to actually make sure that actually change is happening? Yeah, I, I kind of, you know, I'm not evading it, but I, I want to reframe this a bit and say, you know, the, the thing I said at the beginning of, you know, we need to start with a, a critique of the system, you know, of the root causes and the role this, the brand wants to play in that. I, I think that's the critical place to start. So if, if we're not looking, you know, at a system that uh, allows CEOs to get paid 300 times more than the lowest paid employee, uh, you know, in a system that sort of reduces worker pay year on year and, you know, a, a allows um, our economy to be fueled by debt and advertising, you know, that creates needs for, for products not, you know, non-necessary products and money in politics and externalizes climate change and all of those things. If you don't start at that place, you either come up with the, the sort of incrementalism that comes out of the, the mediocrity of marketing departments, so the 30 degrees instead of 40 degrees, or sort of programs that have no real connection with what's happening on the ground, where then it's very easy to sort of mismanage because they're so disconnected from, from what's actually happening. Um, and so, I, you know, I, I think organizations, companies, brands need to think much more constellationally. And, and if they start their, you know, their their ability for authenticity, their ability to sort of not lose that goodwill is many times higher. 
Thank you. I, we're, unfortunately, we're running out of time, but I, I want one quick question I want to ask each of you. And that's if you look ahead for five years and you see that this is a sort of that brands are, are, are learning, developing, changing as we go along in five years times. What, what do you think brands could be doing in terms of achieving real social change? Robin, you first. Well, what's your feeling? I think they could be uh, working with their consumers to do whatever the consumers want them to do. I think what's really interesting is that consumers can tell brands, we want you to do more of this. So I think that they can be led by their customers to be more than just selling stuff, but to be sharing in the values that the consumers have. Chrissy, the same question to you. Five years time, what would you like to see? I think that what we're already seeing is how brands are coming together to fight an issue. So it's not just one single brand to one single issue. You see brands coming together and you also see them working together with governments and policy makers and NGOs to actually fight these issues in a holistic way. So just to give you an example of that, Coca-Cola, which is one of Red's partners, they work with the Global Fund to actually figure out how best to distribute the medicines on the ground in some of the hardest areas of the world. So I think that what you're already seeing and what will continue to be seen is a brand's involvement is is much more than just about marketing. It's actually fighting the issues and um, providing solutions through many different aspects. Great. And Elnor, finally, uh, the last word to you. So what, what I think will happen in, in the next five years is actually a, a reduction in this concentration of power from, from big corporations and actually smaller businesses that sort of serve the needs of, of people uh, in a more authentic way and, and truly you know, taken to the best interests of the majority of the world's people, which which obviously profit-maximizing corporations, you know, don't do. And, 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 you know, I think we'll always need commerce, but we won't always need corporations. And I think the next five years will sort of push us in that direction. So a lot of change to come. That's all good news. Um, that's all we have time for today. Um, my thanks again to Chrissy Philolithes, Robin White, Alnor Latta and Megan Ramsey. Uh, remember, you can continue this discussion on our site. Go to guardian.co.uk forward slash sustainable business. My name is Joe Confino. The producer was Matt Hill with support from Jenny Pert. Thank you for listening. For more great downloads, go to guardian.co.uk forward slash audio.